Let's open our copy of God's Word to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. This morning we come to what is undoubtedly one of the most familiar and beloved stories in the Bible. The story of Daniel in the lion's den. It is the last of six historical narratives that deal with Daniel and his involvement in the leadership in a foreign nation. It is one of the most beloved Bible stories because I think it's one that we learn at a young age and we all can remember the the pictures in the children's story Bible about this wonderful account. It is really more than just a nice children's story, though. It is a tremendous account, a tremendous chapter that truly demonstrates for us the faithfulness of God displayed to his faithful people. You remember that this is a theme that we continue to see developed all the way through the early chapters of the book of Daniel. We saw it specifically back in Daniel chapter 3 when God delivered Daniel's friends from the fiery furnace. And once more, as we come to Daniel chapter 6, really a parallel chapter to Daniel chapter 3, we see God's ability to protect his faithful followers. We're going to see this morning that God is truly sovereign, and he's truly good to his people, even in the most fearsome circumstances. We're going to see how we as believers can find peace, profound peace, in some of the midst of the most difficult trials and tribulations. We're going to be reminded again of the fact that God truly does rule human history. He truly is in in charge of all things. And we're going to see this morning that despite appearances, despite whatever is going on around us in this broken, fallen world with corrupt governments and and fallen nations and and the, the changing of nations from one king to another, in the midst of all of that, God is sovereign. And in the midst of all of that, God is good. And in the midst of all of that, God cares for his people. We need to hear that message. Maybe you're sick of hearing it because we've been saying it for a number of chapters going through these early chapters of Daniel. But it is a truth that we continue to need to hear that God truly is sovereign over the nations. And nations come and nations go and nations rise and nations fall. And yet God truly is faithful to his people in the midst of all of that. We've been saying all throughout our study of the book of Daniel so far that God is a sovereign God. And we need to continue to reiterate that truth, that that is indeed true, that God is a sovereign God. And yet we must also be clear that God is a good God. See, it's easy for us to focus just on his sovereignty and get so focused on his control of all things that, that we forget that he's also good. It's important for us to distinguish because if God is just sovereign, but he's not good, then he can become a harsh ruler, a harsh king, a harsh God. He's also good. And yet, if we focus just on his goodness, and if we focus just on the fact that he's a kind and a gracious God, sometimes we can get the idea that he's impotent, that he's not powerful, that he's not really in control of all things. And so we need to hold those twin truths of God's character side by side, that he is both a sovereign God and a good God. And it is these these two qualities of God, these two attributes of God, that we see brought together here in Daniel chapter 6. 
tremendous chapter that reminds us to be faithful to God and that he is faithful to those who are his own. You remember that Daniel, as a book, was written, first of all, to the nation of Israel, who was in exile, who was in bondage, who was in captivity to the nation of Babylon initially, and as we're going to see today, to the nation of Medo-Persia initially. It was written to encourage them to remain faithful. It was written to them to encourage them to remain steadfast in their conviction and commitment to a faithful God, and it's that truth that we need to hear as well. Go back to Daniel chapter 2. Let me just remind you of some of the, the key things that we've seen so far about God's sovereignty. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 20 and 21. Let me just remind you of some of these marvelous statements that we've seen about the sovereignty of God in this chapters. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 20 says, Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. It is he who removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men. Go over to Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. We're just surveying, again, some of these key statements about God's sovereign control over all things. Verse 17 says, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is the command of the holy ones, in order that the living... That's you and me. That's all people of all times may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. God is sovereignly in control of the nations. He's in control of kings and rulers. Go over to Daniel chapter 4 at the end, verses 34 and 35. Nebuchadnezzar admitted, for his kingdom is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does everything according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's the dominant theme all throughout these early chapters of Daniel. That God is sovereignly in control of the nations. It's reiterated by the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 40, he says, verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket, and they are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing to him, and they are regarded by him as less than nothing. Tremendous statements in this book and throughout the rest of Scripture that God is the sovereign God of the universe who sits enthroned in his kingdom and one day will bring his everlasting dominion. It is this truth that we see vividly illustrated in Daniel's life. We've seen him minister in Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's court. We've seen him minister in Babylon in Belshazzar's court. And now this morning, we enter phase two of the times of the Gentiles. You remember back in Daniel chapter 2, there was a statue, and that statue represented the, the coming different kingdoms. And the first kingdom was Babylon, represented by Nebuchadnezzar. The second kingdom is that of the Medes and the Persians, and it is this kingdom that is now in power as we approach Daniel chapter 6. There's a new regime in power, and yet the same God on his throne, and God's same faithful man, Daniel, faithfully serving. God has him right where he wants him. God is unfazed by this new Gentile power, and we're going to see this morning how God is faithful to his people 
in the midst of changing times. I want to show you this morning seven points. We'll get through all of them, I promise. They all start with D. And we just want to walk through this passage, and we're going to see how this entire chapter supports the key idea that God is sovereign and He's good and He cares for His people in His faithfulness, especially to those who are faithful to Him. Let's look at these first. Number one is the distrust. The distrust. And by that I mean there are those who are going to confront Daniel out of a spirit of envy and jealousy, and they distrust him. And that's how this whole chapter opens, with distrust towards a godly man by the name of Daniel. It begins in verse 1. Let's look at it together. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. We meet a man here by the name of Darius. Who is this man? He was first mentioned at the end of chapter 5, if you look up just a couple verses, to Daniel chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. It says, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. And so Darius the Mede received his kingdom at about the age of 62. We meet him here. The question is, who is this guy? There are a number of critics of the book of Daniel who question its historicity, the basis of this man. And they say that because in the historical record of the nation of Medes and the Persians, there was no man by the name of Darius that was king. And so on the basis of that, they say that this book must not have been true and accurate and and right, and so they are quick to dismiss it on the basis of the questionability of this man. How do you handle that? Is the Bible not true because he's not found in a historical record? The eight guys that just came back from the Shepherds Conference and heard about biblical inerrancy, that answer doesn't sit very well. There must be an explanation here for how this man could be here if there's no record of him in the historical account. There's a number of possible explanations for it, but let me give you this. I think this is the correct answer, that Darius is the same man as Cyrus. This is another name for King Cyrus. Say, why do we think that? It is possible that in that day, some of these men had a couple of names. They had different names to refer to them in different places within their kingdom. And so I think it's very possible that this is an alternate name for King Cyrus. Or it's also very possible that the word Darius was actually a name to refer to a king. It's just a general word, king or pharaoh or ruler or Caesar. It's a title, a title of honor, a title of significance, and this most likely was a a title given to Cyrus. He's Darius the Mede, or King Cyrus. He is now the new king on the block. He has overtaken Babylon, and he is the one who God has sovereignly raised up, listen, to send his people back to Jerusalem. You remember that God ordained that the nation of Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. That they were to experience God's judgment for 70 years for their rebellion and their idolatry. And so God raised up the Babylonians to bring them into exile. And then God also sovereignly raised up a man by the name of Cyrus to send them back to Jerusalem. This was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. 
It says, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. It's prophesied in Isaiah 150 years before these events in Daniel that God would raise up a man by the name of Cyrus to deliver his people and send them back to their land. That's who I believe this man is. Darius the Mede, Cyrus, the king of Persia, the same man. Well, look what he did. Go to verse 1 and 2 of this chapter. It says, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. When you're the new king in town, you've got to establish yourself, right? You've got to kind of reorganize your kingdom after taking over another kingdom. And so that's exactly what Darius does. He, he marches into town and he takes over Babylon and he begins to reorganize the government and restructure this, this system of hierarchy over his kingdom. And so he appoints 120 satraps. Those are governing officials, kind of like governors or mayors who would kind of function within his kingdom to give some oversight and some direction to to his kingdom. And over them, it says that he placed three commissioners or three presidents or prime ministers, men who would kind of function as his vice president. So it's Darius, the three commissioners, 120 satraps over the kingdom. It says in verse 2 that Daniel was one of these commissioners. Tremendous. Why Daniel? Because I think Darius has heard about this man. I think Darius is somehow familiar with this man and is aware of of what he has done under Nebuchadnezzar. And he's aware of his great abilities and his ability to distinguish visions and dreams and his administrative ability and organizational ability and administrative ability. And you can see that in verse 3. Then it says this, Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. What a great reputation. Daniel was known as a man who had an extraordinary spirit. And I think that refers to his ability to discern dreams and and visions. And yet I think it also refers to his character. This is a man who is faithful, a man of integrity, a man of reputation, a man of godliness, a man of unswerving convictions, a man of uncompromising faith. He was faithful, he was trustworthy, he was loyal, he was wise, he was a gifted leader, a gifted administrator, and remember, he functioned under Nebuchadnezzar for 39 years. He had a good reputation. And because of this, because of his moral fiber, he was chosen for this position of honor. In fact, it says in verse 3 that he planned to make him administrator over the entire kingdom. It's quite an honor for this man. Here's what I love about this. How old is Daniel at this point? Old. He was taken captive in 605 B.C. at age 15 or 16. It is now 539 B.C., 66 years later, and Daniel is pushing 90. He's at at least in his early 80s, if not close to 
his 90th birthday, and here he is still faithfully living for the Lord, still faithfully following the Lord, still, still honoring him, still, still God's man, still God's choice in this entire region. I love that. Here's a man who's finishing well. Don't you love that? I love examples and stories of these kind of people who have chosen to commit themselves to the Lord and are consistent from start to finish. He started well as a young man, as a teenager under Nebuchadnezzar. He was committed to the Lord in the midst of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And here he is, almost 90 years old, still faithfully following the Lord. What a great example. He didn't peter out. He didn't fade in the stretch. He finished well. We need to hear about that. Because it seems like today there are so many people who as they progress in their Christian life, they kind of just fade off. They stop serving in the church. Stop really being committed to the Lord. They stop hungering and thirsting for His Word and and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and holiness. They they seem to kind of let their guard down. Have you noticed that? That age tends in many cases not to do well to a number of people. Here's an example of a man who faithfully is following the Lord all these decades later. I want to be like that, don't you? I want our church to be like that, don't you? I don't want to see some of us just kind of fading away and, and, and just kind of saying, well, you know, I get to retire and walk the beaches. And I'm not getting retirement. You've got to slow down at some point. But friends, listen, we can faithfully serve and follow the Lord well into our upper years and faithfully commit ourselves to Him and serve in His church and minister to God's people. Last week at the Shepherds Conference, we stopped and saw a couple that uh, Julie and I met about 20 years ago. Uh, They were in Spokane visiting from Southern California at our church. We were being sent out that morning uh, to seminary, and so they said, you know, when you get down to seminary, look us up. We go to Grace Church as well. We'll we'll be there. Find us, and, uh, you know, we'd love to minister to you. They're at that point in their uh, mid-late 60s, and uh, just last week we saw them. I saw them again, and they're in their mid-80s now, pushing 90 as well. He's got dementia, but she is faithfully serving the Lord. She gave me cookies every Sunday in seminary. To the point that I became a chunky monkey. It was not pretty. Some of you remember, who know me well, I was, yeah, it wasn't good. And last week she gave me cookies again. Just to kind of reiterate her love and affection for us. They're still faithfully serving the Lord. Faithfully following Christ. Faithfully committed to the Lord. Faithfully serving Him. Still in their mid-90s, mid-80s. What a great example. What a great thing that we should strive for as well. Well, look at verse 4. This creates problems. This faithfulness, this integrity, this, this uncompromising conviction, this, this faith in this, in this godly man by the name of Daniel creates friction between him and his comrades. Look at verse 4. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a, a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. They began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly what the issue was, but we can presume that the issue was jealousy. 
And they're angered and they're upset and they're jealous and they're envious of of this man, Daniel, who has risen in such a high position in their kingdom. They're jealous of his position. They're jealous of his privilege. They're jealous of his abilities, his character, his reputation, his godliness. And so you can see the seeds of envy and jealousy begin to foment within their hearts and they want to find some accusation against him. It's really shocking. He's just a godly man, faithfully serving the Lord. I'll tell you, though, a life of integrity always invites detractors, doesn't it? When you live this kind of life, when you live an uncompromising life, you're always going to invite the people who don't like you and they hate you because of your life. Because your life stands as, a, as a, a light against their sin. As your life stands as a testimony to what it's like to truly know and love the Lord. Your life becomes an indictment to them. It becomes a rebuke against them. And they look at your life and they, they begin to, to, to look for issues in your life. They want to try and get you to fall. Because if they can get you to fall, then that makes themselves look better. And that's what you have going on here. You have these men who are... Frustrated by Daniel's integrity. That's the way it's always been. Ever since Cain and Abel, that's the way it's been. Godliness shines light on sin, and those who are involved in sin are rebuked by that. And instead of running from their sin and running towards righteousness, they'd rather just cast aspersions against those who are living that kind of way. That's exactly what we see. They hate him for his integrity. They hate him for his privilege. They hate him for his position, his ability. Friends, the truth is we need to to recognize that we live in a hostile world and that's just the way it is. That's just how it is. If you're going to live godly for Christ, you will invite opposition. You will invite persecution in your life as your life stands as an indictment against theirs. Jesus says this. Jesus himself experienced that very thing, didn't he? As did Abel, as did Paul. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who have persecuted you for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you, and one of those prophets is by the name of Daniel. Faithful, trustworthy, man of conviction, who's persecuted simply for his righteousness. Friends, listen, don't be surprised when that happens. Don't be surprised when you're mocked at school. Don't be surprised when you're mocked at work for being goody two-shoes or a Jesus follower. You shouldn't be surprised by that. You're in good company. We should expect that kind of persecution because that's always the way it goes. Here's the problem, though. They couldn't find anything on Daniel. Verse 4, Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. And no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Isn't that wonderful? Tremendous. 
If any of you have been in poli- around politics, you know that part of politics is digging up the dirt on the other people. And if you've been around during any type of election, you know that there's commercial after commercial after commercial of digging up the dirt on those opponents. And what I love about this is you've got a whole group of men here who are trying to find some dirt on Daniel, who's 90 years old, and you'd think if there was something at the age of 90, they'd be able to find it. They find nothing. Not one thing. It says that there was found in him no negligence... That's something that he didn't do but should have done. And there's no corruption. There was nothing in him that he did that he wasn't supposed to do. So there were no sins of omission and there were no sins of commission. He was faithful and no evidence of corruption or negligence was found in him. What a tremendous example. What a tremendous man who was able to withstand his detractors who were unable to find any dirt on him. There no, no skeletons in his closet. So, what do you do when you're trying to dig up dirt on somebody and you can't find anything? You attack their character. And you attack their commitment to God. Verse 5. Then these men said... We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. You see what this is? This is a conspiracy. This is a conspiracy to, to entrap him at the level of his commitment to his God. And they know something about Daniel. They know he's committed. They know he's faithful. They know he's a man of integrity. And they know that he will not succumb to laws against his commitment to the Lord. And so they use that against him. This is the distrust. Number two. Let me show you the second one. It's the decree. So here's all the background. You know what's going on now. Driven by this envy, driven by this jealousy, driven by this anger, Daniel's enemies set him up. And they set him up by seeking to trap him by getting the king to issue a decree that would make the king supreme... And would make praying to any other deity illegal. That's what they do. Verse 6. Look what it says. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition... To any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Come up with a plot. Let's have Darius Appreciation Month. That's what this is. And let's make you kind of the, 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 the god that everyone prays to. And that was something that was done very common that day. Those kings often assumed themselves to be deities. And so this was very conducive to their thinking already. Let's, let's set you up, king, as the, the one God to be worshipped and to make worship of any other God against the law. Notice that in order to get this passed, they had to lie. Look at verse 7. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, the governors, have consulted together. Really? All of them? You, you surveyed all 120 
He went all throughout the kingdom and surveyed every single one of them. And the reason we know it's a lie is because certainly Daniel wasn't consulted. And so this whole thing probably was very flattering to Darius. Sounds good. That would kind of put me up as one that's able to secure the allegiance of my people. This sounds pretty good. So they institute a law. Verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. You need to know a little bit about the Medes and the Persians' laws. When they made laws, they were irrevocable. That was part of their, their system. They, they made laws, and once they made laws, they were unbreakable. And the reason they did that probably was to present, prevent whimsical laws being put into place. Just kind of make a law here, make a law there. So they were very serious about making laws. And, the, and what they did is they made sure that when a law was made, it could not be revoked and could not be rescinded. I encourage you to read the book of Esther. Two or three times in the book of Esther, it talks about the king there of Persia writing laws in such a way that they could not be revoked. And so they, they urge Darius to make this irrevocable law that would make it illegal to pray to another god. And so Darius, thinking this is, sounds like a pretty good idea, goes ahead with it. Perhaps he sees this as a way to unite his kingdom, or, or maybe he sees this as a way to kind of secure allegiance to himself, or maybe he sees this as a way to kind of solve some insecurity that he has about his power or his popularity. And so he, he signs this thing into law. Verse 9. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. Pretty foolish on his part. He should have asked the question, uh, why this sudden interest in me? Why my sudden popularity? And where's Daniel, my most trusted confidant? Well, it's official. Anyone caught praying to another god other than Darius would be thrown into the lion's den for an excruciating death by hungry lions. Number three, the disobedience. The distrust, the decree. Number three, the disobedience. What would you do? What would you do in this situation? You're a godly man, godly woman, want to pray to the Lord. You know that if you're told not to by the king or the law, what do you do? Do you fight the law? Do you um, pretend there isn't a law and just do it anyway? Do you, do you stop out of fear of death? Do you, do you protest the unfairness of the law? Do you, do you go in a, in a part of your house where no one's going to see you and pray? Or, or do you just kind of walk on the sidewalk and pray in your head so no one really knows that you're praying? What do you do? Verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. I love that. How did this affect Daniel? Not at all. How did it change him? Zero. Tremendous, tremendous conviction on Daniel's part. He would not be bought, even if there's a law against 
him praying to the mighty God, the one true God, it would not keep him. He just kept on doing what he did. A man of conviction. He prayed three times a day towards Jerusalem. I don't think he's flaunting his rebellion here. I don't think he's trying to be disrespectful or or disobedient on purpose. It's just business as usual for him. This is what he's always done. He's always been a man who's prayed on his roof three times a day towards Jerusalem, and he just keeps doing exactly the very things that he's been doing. Now, if we had more time, we would spend a whole message on this verse alone, on what prayer is like. What what are the marks of, of godly prayer? Let me give you a few in... Two minutes. Number one, it's continual. You want to be a man or a woman marked by prayer that honors the Lord? It's going to be continual prayer. And that's what you see Daniel doing. He is engaged here, continuing in prayer. Look at the end of verse 10. As he had been doing previously. This is just a part of his life. Prayer just marked him. This isn't something, you know, well, last summer I I prayed. This is the mark of a man who's praying continually. Number two, it's daily. Three times a day. This is not commanded in Scripture anywhere. It wasn't a a biblical requirement, but certainly he engaged in this kind of prayer because for him it was his conviction. It was a matter of uh, preference and priority for him to engage in prayer. This was something uh, David had done back in Psalm 55, verse 17. It talks about David being a man who prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and evening, and Daniel is doing the same thing. So it's continual. It's daily. It's also reverent. See him praying on his knees? I'm not saying that's the position you must always assume when you pray, but certainly that attitude reflects reverence. He's praying on his knees. And notice that it's characterized by petitions and thanksgiving. It's the fourth mark. It's continual. It's daily. It's reverent. And it's petitionary and thankful. What great marks of of prayer. Prayer is not always to be marked by, God, give me, give me, give me. It's to be marked by an attitude of thankfulness. And we see Daniel here praying, giving thanks, communicating the Lord on a regular basis, undeterred by a law that protects him or prevents him from doing that. Tremendous example. Do you pray like that? A man or a woman of prayer? Do you bow the knee frequently in, in honor of the Lord and commune with Him in fellowship like that? Well, the men knew exactly what Daniel would do. Look at verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. It says they, they came by agreement. Literally, they rushed as a multitude. So here's, I think, what's happening. They're setting spies out, and they're kind of watching to seeing when Daniel engages in his first act of prayer. I don't think they waited all day to see if he prayed three times that day. I think at the first glimpse of this man praying on the veranda with his eyes focused towards Jerusalem on his knees before the Lord, they came and they rushed him as a multitude and found him doing exactly what they wanted to prohibit, praying to his God. They got him right where they wanted him. Caught violation of the king's decree. Could God have prevented this? Think about this with a, 
with me for a moment. Could God have somehow closed the eyes of these men to make sure that they would not see Daniel praying and thus prevented him from being arrested? Could God have prevented that? Could he have closed their eyes? Of course he could have, just like he closed the the lion's mouth, and we'll see in, in just a moment. But he didn't. Why? Listen very carefully. Because God wanted to save Daniel, not from the trials, but through the trials. You understand that? God didn't want to save him from the trials. God wanted to save him through the trials. And it's very important for us to notice this is the very same thing that happened back in Daniel chapter 3. Could God have prevented Daniel's three friends from being thrown into a fire? Sure, of course. But he didn't. Why? Because he wanted to prove to them his faithfulness through the trials rather than keeping them from the trials. And friends, that is so important for us to understand. At times, God wants to prove himself faithful to you in the midst of your trial. In a way that you never would have understood or seen if you hadn't gone through it. You need to understand that. Because so many times... People come to me and say, hey, Todd, why didn't God stop this? Why didn't God prevent this? Why didn't God keep this person I love from dying? Why did God allow this tragedy to happen when he could have stopped it? Why didn't God do this when he could have stopped it or he could have caused something else to happen? Why? And I think oftentimes we have to answer the question by saying, at times God wants to prove himself faithful by taking you through it. To prove to, his, to you his faithfulness in the midst of it. For you to learn and to grow in the midst of that trial. For you to, to be shepherded by the Lord. To see different parts of God's mercy and grace and character in a way that you never would have seen. If you hadn't gone through that. That often brings God more glory. By your dependence and trust in him in the midst of the trial. Than had you not gone through it. In the first place, listen, God is committed to his glory. He's committed to your sanctification, but he's not committed to your comfort. Right? He's committed to his glory. He's committed to your sanctification and your holiness, but he's not committed to your comfort. Why? Because there's a whole lot more at stake than your comfort. Likely his name, his character. Your growth, your maturity, your sanctification, your, your development in the Lord, your, your growth in Christ, your sanctification, your, your moving towards greater levels of Christ-likeness. He's more committed to that than he is protecting you from some of those trials. You can relate to that. And Julie and I have so many times in our life, nine years of infertility, Failed adoptions, hardships, breaking, heartbreaking things in ministry. And there were a number of times where we were tempted to say, God, why didn't you prevent this? Or, or why, why, why didn't you do this? And every single time we can look back and see, God showed us something about his character and things that we needed to learn in the midst of those trials. Could he have prevented it? Sure, he could have prevented it. But there were things we needed to learn. There were things that we needed to grow in. There, there are parts of God's nature and his character that we needed to be exposed to that only going through a trial like that would teach us. That's the case with Daniel. Verse 12. So they approached 
spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction, king, that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? And the king replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Notice that they don't bring the charge against Daniel first. They, they approach the king and they say, uh, hey, king, uh, didn't you make a law? Didn't you sign something into to law that, that prevented people from praying to a God other than you? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I made that law. Oh, by the way, verse 13. Then they answered and spoke before the king Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you sign, but keeps making his petition three times a day. And you can see and feel just the hatred dripping from their lips. Daniel. One of those exiles from Judah. That's what they think of him as. Not a fellow servant in their court, but a dirty foreign slave. And notice that their accusation is not entirely true. He pays no attention to you, really? He pays no attention to you? Daniel's been faithfully serving this man now for a time. And Darius knows of his character, he knows of his integrity, and Darius brought him into the the leadership of his nation based on the very character that he had heard about. Really? He, He ignored you? I don't think that's the case. Well, Daniel's caught, and the king has a decision to make. Number four, the distress. The distrust, the decree... The disobedience, number four, the distress. Darius loved this man. Darius held this man in high esteem. And suddenly he realizes he's the victim of a trap. Verse 14. Then as soon, actually go back up to verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel? I'm reading the wrong verse. I apologize. Verse 13. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed. And set his mind on delivering Daniel, and even until sunset, he came exerting himself to rescue him. This man was greatly distressed. Distressed over the fact that he had been so short-sighted as to sign a decree so hastily. Distressed at the fact that Daniel, whom he he respected so greatly, was, was the one charged with this disloyalty. So he tried to rescue him. In that day, law, the Medo-Persian law, required an execution to take place by sunset. And so Darius knows he's got a short time. So he spends the day, maybe just a few hours, trying to figure out a way. How do we get Daniel off the hook? Maybe he pulls some of his legal strings and tries to convince some of his lawyers to, to make a way to undo the law or to see if the decree could be set aside somehow. But his hands were tied, trapped. Well, this wasn't the response that Daniel's enemies were expecting. 
So look what they say. Verse 15, then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. They say, king, listen, you made the law. You, you put it into practice. It's, it's legal. You can't break it. And the king knows he's backed into a corner. He knows. His hands are tied. His feet are held to the fire. So, he chose the only thing he could choose. And he sends Daniel to the lion's den. Number five, the den. The distrust, the decree, the disobedience, the distress. Number five, the den. Darius had no choice. He had signed the law into into law, and he had to follow through on it, probably because he knew if he went against his law, he would undermine his own ability and his own authority for the rest of his kingship. And so he gives the order, verse 16, the king gave the orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. It says in verse 16, they brought him in and they cast him into the lion's den. Now, I was reading about this this week. You may want to know that this was not a cage that you see at the zoo. This was most likely a pit. In fact, the word for den in Aramaic is similar to the word for dig. And so most likely this was a pit in the ground, some sort of depression or, or dug out area that was kind of covered over with some sort of roof, with some sort of door in the top of it. And that makes sense because it says in verse 16, they cast him into the lion's den. Look down in verse 23. It says when he was taken out, he was taken up out of the den. And look down in verse 24. It says that the enemies of Daniel were cast into the lion's den. And before they hit bottom, their bones were crushed. So this must have been some sort of pit that you entered from the top, and that's exactly what's taking place here. And we know from from history that the Medes and the Persians favored this kind of execution. Unlike the Babylonians, who preferred execution by fire, not not the Medes and the Persians, they worshiped fire. And so they never would have used fire as a means of of punishment. So they resorted to another type of execution, death by hungry lions. Sounds like a horrible way to go, doesn't it? So Daniel is cast into the lion's den. And notice what Darius says, verse 16. He says, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Oh, what a great statement. Where did he get that idea? How does Darius know about the God who will deliver him? Well, certainly Darius has been exposed to to God through Daniel, through all of these years and through all of the things that he's heard that Daniel did by God's power under Nebuchadnezzar. Your God will deliver you. And notice what he says about Daniel. Your God whom you constantly serve. What a great state. Your God constantly serve. Your God... To whom you are fully committed. Your God to whom there was unwavering conviction. Keep in mind, this is a pagan king. Recognizing these qualities in a godly man. Wouldn't we want to be known for the same things? 
Wouldn't we want to be known to the world as those who continually serve our God? Are you? People in your life that don't know the Lord, would they look at you and say, there's there's a person who continually serves the Lord. Even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of hardships, there is someone who clings to the Lord. I can think of no better compliment paid than that. What a great statement for our church to be known for something like that as well. There's a church that constantly serves the Lord. Well, verse 17. To make sure that Daniel wouldn't escape. Verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing might be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. This traumatized Darius. And he says he didn't even want any entertainment brought to him. And that word is kind of hard to interpret. We don't exactly know what that word means. It's best to be interpreted as no diversions. No diversions were brought to him. No food, no dancing, no women, no wine, no music. Because he's so distressed to the point that he can't sleep. Contrast that with Daniel who, although the text doesn't tell us, I think is sleeping like a baby in a den of lions. Isn't that a remarkable contrast? The king, the most powerful king in the world, unable to sleep when you've got a godly man in the midst of a lion den sleeping peacefully. Number six, the deliverance. Verse 19. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. He needs to know what happened. And the text makes it very clear that the very first thing he did at first light, at the brightness of the dawning, he went in haste. He he wasted no time. He had to see what happened to Daniel. Is it possible some way that his God could have preserved him, could have saved him? Verse 20, when he come near the den to Daniel, he cried out in a troubled voice. And the king spoke to, said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions. You can sense the worry, the fear, the anxiety. You can sense the agitation, the the deep concern, the anguish in Darius' voice. Is it possible that the servant of the living God was preserved by that living God? You see, he knows something about idols. Idols are dead. Idols can't act. Idols can't do anything. But the living God, maybe there's a hope that the living God... And I have to imagine that the next few seconds felt like years. Verse 21. Then Daniel spoke to the king. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also, turn, uh, also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. He's alive. <laughs> He's alive. Can you imagine the suspense as you're reading this for the first time? 
Imagine you're a Jewish person reading this and suddenly you're on the, on the, on the edge of your seat and you're hearing the story being read and suddenly he's alive. God protected him. What a tremendous miracle. And Daniel says here that, that he protected him by, by shutting the lion's mouths. Friends, that is a miracle. I was reading this week, most commentators don't believe there were one or two little cute lions in there. There were probably 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. And the reason they think that is because down in verse 24, when it says that the enemies who were thrown in reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. If there were a number of people who were his enemies who threw them all in at once, there had to have been a number of lions who ate them all up at once before they hit the ground. This was a pack full of lions, and God in his miraculous power and ability shut them. It says this was done by an angel, his angel. It's very possible that this is the angel of the Lord. It doesn't tell us that specifically, but this is very possible that this is Christ. The same man who was found in chapter 3 walking around a furnace as the fourth man protecting Daniel's friends in the midst of the fiery furnace. Verse 23. So the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God What a great statement. Not a scratch was found on him because he trusted in his God. What a tremendous statement about a man of God, this aged statesman who has faithfully served the Lord almost to his 90th year, and here he is still faithfully trusting in his God. Friend, this this tells us something about the character and nature of God. He's trustworthy. He's dependable. He's reliable. He's faithful to his people. He's not only sovereign, but he's good. And you can trust him with your life. You can trust him for your salvation. Listen, I don't know what kind of troubles you're in right now. I don't know whatever trials you're facing today. And I'm sure that in a room with 200 people, there are some weighty things. And some of you are here this morning weighed down by some significant trials that you're about to face or are facing right now. I don't know all those, but I know one thing. But God can shut the mouths of lions. He can minister to you in your time of trouble. He can help you. He is with you. He has not forsaken you. And he is worthy of your trust. And he is worthy of your confidence. Jeremiah 17 Verses 5 through 8 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes his flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and he will not be anxious in a year of drought. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Look what happened to his enemies. Verse 24, the king then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and their wives, into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. That'll minister to your soul, won't it? 
gives us a little window there into the law of the Medes and the Persians. That if you were guilty of something, that guilt applied also to your family. The men, their wives, and their children thrown into the pit. Number seven, how does this end? The distrust, the decree, the disobedience, the distress, the den, the deliverance, the declaration. Verse 25. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, the nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Sounds pretty reminiscent of Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? Once again, the mightiest person on the planet, the mightiest king in charge of the mightiest nation, is brought to the point where he acknowledges the greatness and the power and the sovereignty of God. Tremendous. And he confesses that God is the living God, that he endures forever, that his kingdom is eternal, and he alone can rescue his people. Tremendous. Do you have the same confidence that Darius did, having seen this face to face? Friends, listen, the basic message of this entire chapter is remain faithful to God and He will care for you. God is sovereign and He's good and He's able to deliver His people. He's able to protect them and minister to them. Is the world a broken place? Absolutely. Is this an evil place we live? Sure it is. Can you turn on the TV and see all kinds of bad things happening? Absolutely. Are nations rising and falling? Absolutely. Are there wicked rulers in place? Sure. But one thing we know, God is sovereign, and he's good, and he cares for those who are faithfully committed to him. Are you one of them? Verse 28 closes, so this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Friends, God's, God takes care of his people, and we can cast our burdens on him knowing that he cares for us. Father, we thank you for Daniel. And we thank you, Lord, that through this man, you put him in a position to demonstrate your faithfulness, to demonstrate your sovereignty, to demonstrate your goodness, to prove again and again and again that you are the living God, the sovereign king of the universe. The God whose kingdom never ends and whose dominion never fails. Lord, we praise you that we can see in vivid illustration your sovereign protection of your people and your ability to save, protect, preserve. What a great reminder. Lord, help us to remember that as we watch nations around us crumble, as we watch ungodliness in the highest levels of government, let us remember that you're sovereign. At the same time, Father, let us remember that you're good, 
If there are any here this morning, Lord, who are struggling deeply in the current trials and tribulations that you have them, Lord, may they hold fast to your goodness. May they, like Daniel, trust you. And Father, may you prove yourself faithful to them for your glory and their good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.